as they took off the pilot w with the doctor and the patient aboard, they flew over where we were standing and there were two old bushmen with me. One was a toothless fellow with only one eye and he was smoking a stub of a clay pipe, a real outbacker. The shadow of the plane just after midday was almost outlined, the shadow of a cross at our feet as it flew away. And this old bushman took out of his mouth this stub of a pipe and he pointed it up and he said, that bloke's the flying Christ. Well, I used to ride a lot, and I used to ride a lot alone over the hills and mountains and the country around the Manning River, and there seemed something rather marvellous about riding to the top of the hill and looking out over the landscape. And uh, on a very good day, sometimes a stray aeroplane would, would come a little bit inland, and I would see it in the sky, and there was always a magnetic attraction to me of an aeroplane in the sky. It was as though there was a straight line between me and that aeroplane. And I just, just knew that's what I wanted to do. The sky is a pale and relentless blue, or it is roiling and rolling with rain-heavy thunderheads. It's watched with anxiety and with passion. The sky is the canvas of our future. What's up there now determines what we'll eat in a few months' time, or whether we'll eat at all. Through it, invisible, wonderful and terrible things roam, the high and low fronts that bring us our droughts and our floods, but the miracle of radio waves too, of satellite signals. Artistically inspiring, a painter might take the sky right out of the picture, or in another stroke, paint in the refractions that create the Fata Morgana, mirages on the horizon. A writer stands in jubilant awe under the thunderheads, up there, a woman flies solo, navigating by the fence posts below. A doctor saves a life, and a plane flies by which might carry us to other lands, but might also carry bombs to threaten us all. The artistry of flight is not unlike the artistry of riding, especially uh, riding alone and dreaming your dreams, thinking your thoughts, singing at the top of your voice, and lonely part of the country. Uh, with a horse, you have a delicate touch in your hands. Your horse changes to your command of your hands and your thighs. So does an aeroplane. In the early days, aeroplanes, you flew by the seat of your pants. You can tell whether you're slipping or whether you're straight and level and that sort of thing on your body, as you can on a horse. And the same with the hands. As you move the stick to the left, you bank or you dive, or you climb. Well, it's quite a similarity, and that was proved during the First World War. It was the light horsemen that made the best Australian Flying Corps pilots. In the early 1930s, pioneer aviator Nancy Bird was living in Mount George, near the Manning River in New South Wales, with her father, a country storekeeper. She'd been managing his accounts for him, signing his cheques, ever since she was 13. But by 17, she was ready to fly, literally. Inspired by Amy Johnson, the first woman to fly from London to Australia, Nancy saved up for classes with Charles Kingsford Smith at Mascot, and in 1933, she took her first lesson. Well, at 15, I'd had a 
trial instructional flight when I was visiting mother in the city. And I just followed everything in the newspapers about the flights, Kingsford Smith's flight from across the Pacific, anything that happened in aviation, and I just set my mind on it. It was my goal, my intention. Dad said I'd waste all my money, but I said, but I, I want to do this, and uh, I'm going to do this as, as soon as I'm able to. And it was a coincidence that Charles Kingsford Smith came barnstorming to Wingham, and I went in to have another flying lesson or to have another flight, and he said, I'm opening a flying school in August of this year at Mascot. Why don't you come down and we'll teach you to fly? So with 200 precious pounds in my pocket, I came down to, to Mother and went out to Mascot and kept my appointment with him and started my flying lessons. And I was there for the next, oh, 18 months. Sculptor Nancy Lyle was a close friend of Nancy Bird. Another pioneering woman of the skies, she was so concerned about Melbourne's vulnerability to air attack during World War II that she flew over it with bags of flour, dropping them on the buildings she felt were at risk to show how badly the city was defended. She picked out buildings that needed camouflaging, actually. She marked them from the air. Nancy Lyle was so modest and so self-effacing that you had to drag anything out of it. She is the only woman who in Australia flew during the war. And when the Air Force wouldn't cooperate with the Beaufort bombers to get their range finding, she actually volunteered her aircraft and flew it for them to get range practice. She flew her own little aeroplane. And the only way we ever really heard anything much about it was by talking to the officers who were in charge because you couldn't get much out of Nancy. She'd just say, oh, she just did you know, a little bit of flying or something like that, you know. <laughs> the development of flight in the first decades of the 20th century was inextricably caught up in a more anxious sky and flower bombs appear in Australian aviation history more than once. With the first Channel Crossing in 1909, Britain's press declared the nation no longer an island, and after that the world opened up, for good and ill. In the lead-up to the Great War, flight became a part of invasion anxiety around the world, including in Australia, where it was most clearly expressed in the 1912 novel The Air Scout by Herbert Strang. David Walker, Professor of Australian Studies at Deakin University. H.G. Wells wrote his War of the Worlds in 1908, which is a dramatic moment in aerial bombing, if you like, or speculation about being bombed from the air. And that has a huge impact. And in the following year, there's, there are a lot of scares about zeppelins over England. So 1908-9, there's a lot of speculation about vulnerability from the air. And at about that time, I guess, Herbert Strang marries the idea of air surveillance to the older theme of Asian invasion. So what he has is a great flotilla, a Chinese flotilla bearing down upon northern Australia. He has a couple of chaps in the Northern Territory who've just acquired an aircraft and they're experimenting with its capabilities. They have little bags of flour that they drop out of the side of the plane in order to test how you bomb things. So the station on which they're practising 
their bombings is pockmarked with little flower marks all around the place as they work out the aerodynamics of bombing. So this is fiction, but when did we actually implement then in Australia a real air guard, our own air guard? We have the Flying Corps, which is established around about 1913. It was fairly small initially. I think there were two pilots and four mechanics or something of that kind, but the idea of the air as being a necessary arm of, of defence dates from this period. I wonder, did we do this in order to defend ourselves from the north or was it to fight in other people's battles primarily, in other theatres of war? Well, I think there was probably a bit of both. In the Australian case, the coming war before the Great War was nearly always a war with Asia. And, and certainly Herbert Strang, in the preface to the air pilot, writes of that, you know, that it will be a coming war with the quote-unquote yellow races. So the idea that an air capability would be needed in order to defend Australia from threats from the north, I think, was very strong. But as the war developed into a European war, then those capabilities were seen to be useful in other theatres of war. The most eloquent cry for the Flying Doctor is a silent one. The station graveyards and the little graves. The whole of the outback is a pageant of graves and their stories of men, women and children who departed this life without the hope of loving kindness in medical care. Too often, mother and baby lie together. Ernestine Hill. You'll find war on the horizon of this program like a dark cloud that somehow still manages to have a silver lining. It was the war again that was part of the backstory of another of Australia's great airborne traditions. Here's John Lynch, CEO of the Royal Flying Doctors Service. Well, when Jimmy Darcy had that accident back in uh, 1917, he was the Aboriginal stockman who was badly injured in a fall and then transported by his friends over more than probably a 12 or 14 hour journey to Halls Creek. And uh, the only person there who has any qualifications medically was the postmaster, a first aid certificate he held. So he tried to contact doctors at both Derby and uh, Wyndham and it was unsuccessful and he finally got in touch with a doctor in Perth, a Dr Holland. And Dr Holland gave the postmaster some instructions by Morse code to uh, carry out the surgery because he was badly in need of bladder operations. And he conducted them with a penknife and of course Dr Holland then proceeded with the journey to uh, get to the patient and when he got there the patient had died but he found that the operations were actually successful and that Jimmy Darcy had died from an undiagnosed bout of malaria and uh, an abscessed appendix. Th that news took the war off the front page of newspapers. Then it was clear that that was just too, too great a distance that somebody should need to be away from medical care. And uh, so that's more than probably the real story that inspired the, the beginnings of this journey from 1917 to 1928 when we were founded. So Flynn would have been inspired by this story. When did he realise that flight then was the way to provide a service to these outback people? A fellow called Clifford Peel, who was a Lieutenant Clifford Peel, he was a, a Victorian medical student. Uh, he developed an interest in aviation and uh, he heard of Flynn's ideas and uh, combining Flynn's ideas with his own, 
he wrote to the Reverend Flynn uh, when he was on a boat uh, on journey for France for the war. And uh, Peel's letter was dated November the 21st, 1917. And uh, he hailed in that letter that aeroplanes uh, could overcome many of the transport problems of the inland. So Flynn took that on board and then he actually published Peel's ideas in the church's Inlander magazine. Unfortunately, uh, Peel wasn't to see us embark on this particular journey with regard to aircraft as he lost his life in the war. Reverend John Flynn was the main driver of the Royal Flying Doctors Service and incidentally presided over Nancy Bird's wedding to Charles Walton. But there were others who played a vital role in the creation of the service which today helps one patient every three minutes. Reverend Fred Mackay began working with John Flynn in the 1930s and stayed a part of the Flying Doctors for almost 70 years. Here, courtesy of the Australian National Library Archives, he describes the effect John Flynn had on his target audience to Alec Bolton. When the, the report of the Australian Land Mission came on, John Flynn was very critically discussed. There were people, leaders of the church, who were making statements that resources of the church were not being wisely spent on pedal radio experiments, flying doctor work, and I felt that Flynn wouldn't be able to answer these things, and I was waiting for him to get up and, you know, and speak. So were we all. And... Uh, when John Flynn got up to speak at that particular time, he had a loping stride, he walked slowly to the pulpit, and uh, he wasn't an impressive speaker, nor did he have a commanding presence. And uh, he went to the lectern, and uh, he just looked quietly around the people, not a bit of hurry, and he would swear that he hadn't heard the criticism. He didn't mention people. To my memory, he captured the people by saying, I'd like to tell you some stories about the bush. <laughs> and with a positive note and a dreary sort of droll in his voice, an engaging smile, you know, he'd tell them. And, you know, they voted him his full rations, his budget and everything. And the other people, there was nothing said about it. It was amazing to me as, as, a, as a young student now, flight also changed the way we saw, we thought about and the way we expressed the landscape in which we lived. And for Australian artists, being up in the sky brought a whole new approach to painting. Of course, it meant once up there, the emphasis was on the ground below. In his Lake Air series, John Olson painted the sky right out of the picture. The focus was on the life teeming around the lake's edge, as seen from the air. The aerial view that artists took fitted perfectly with the modernist project, the flattening of the picture plane so that perspective was done away with altogether. Here's artist Mandy Martin, followed by archaeologist and art curator from the University of New England, June Ross. What's a modernist sky like? You know, obviously cubism, you know, once we started trying to look through the object and sort of imagine all sides of the object, of the cube as it were, the sky didn't necessarily fit with that view. 
artists like William Robinson in recent times virtually leads the viewer to lie on their back and look up through the canopy of trees to the sky again. Mm. But during the whole modernist era, particularly with the flattening of the picture plane and abandoning deep space in the picture plane so you don't have foreground, middle ground, distance, you obviously didn't have a sky plane. I mean, if you think about John Olson, for example, or Fred Williams, you know, either they move the sky right to a very narrow band at the top of the picture plane or maybe even drop the sky out altogether so you almost have an aerial view that in one sense marries the Aboriginal painting point of view with a European modernist point of view. But I mean really that whole period of painting sort of the gum tree school that fell into such disrepute really during the war years um, you know, those wonderful, wonderful skies and landscapes of Hans Heysen from the earlier in the 20th century through to the 30s and 40s, 50s. I mean, he sort of then became quite unpopular, you know, because it was a very traditional view of landscape. And the viewpoint of people like in the 50s of Tucker and Nolan and Boyd and so on, where often the sky disappeared totally or was just a fragmented triangle or, or strip really changed the way we saw sky. Nolan saw the landscape as alien. He wasn't feeling within the landscape. And I think it's quite interesting that he's chosen an aerial perspective to portray this because he's not sitting down on the ground like we've expected artists to be in the past. He's above the landscape looking down. And I think then when we get to the work of people like Fred Williams, you get an even greater aerial perspective. There's no sky at all. He focuses entirely on the land. So the focus is on then on looking down at the ground. Mandy Martin is from Cowra in New South Wales. Her massive work, Red Ochre Cove, hangs in Parliament House in Canberra. She's also a grazier, so she's long been obsessed with the weather and the sky and the visual tricks it can play. Yeah, those endless dry skies, but so much sort of suspended dust and, you know, so many dust storms. And, and really, it is the dust which causes the interesting phenomena in the sky in the absence of uh, clouds, I guess. You know, when you have a change coming like we did last night and this morning, you, you start getting fantastic clouds and wonderful streaks of cirrus and that sort of thing. But in the absence of that and just these dry, dusty northwesterlies that have blown for seems forever. Um, it's, it's dust that describes structure in the sky. What sort of colours do you see? What sort of blue is it that you see? You get a lot of red particles from dirt and dust and, you know, if you're painting the sky, you'd mix in a hefty dose of cobalt violet or even a bit of uh, Indian red, possibly, or um, in my case, I use a lot of red ochres, you know, natural pigment, into the blue. You never really get a pristine, clear, sparkling blue in a drought out in the inland Australia. Now, post-World War I found sky enthusiasts all over the place. Like Nancy Bird Walton, they couldn't wait to get up there. But to the general public who didn't have the means, photographer Frank Hurley showed the sky in a way they'd never experienced before. Robert Dixon is Professor of Australian Literature at the University of Sydney. Hurley was the official photographer for the Australian Imperial Force in the Great War. He first flew in Palestine in 1917. He was taken up in the cockpit of a Bristol fighter 
by the great Australian air ace, Ross Smith. And it's fascinating that Hurley actually strapped his still and cinema cameras onto the machine gun rack of the Bristol fighter in order to stop the vibration. Uh, so literally he was shooting war with his camera strapped to the machine gun rack. And on that first flight he watched a German bombing raid from above the aeroplanes. And he, he described the concussion of the bombs as they hit the desert being like vast rocks, huge rocks dropped into a pool and the ripples spreading through the, through the air. It was a totally transforming experience on his already very trained eye as a cameraman and it opened up for him a whole new way of seeing the world. Did he actually describe what it was like to be up there, what it felt like? Yes, Hurley was not only a photographer and a filmmaker, he was also a very accomplished travel writer. And at the moment I'm actually preparing an illustrated edition of his diaries, which are filled with wonderful writing about flight. In the summer of 1919, Ross Smith won an air race sponsored by the Australian government to fly from London to Sydney. And Hurley met him at Charleville in Queensland and filmed that stage of the flight from Charleville into Sydney. And Hurley wrote a number of descriptions of this for the Sydney papers. And in the early 20s, the Sydney newspapers were filled with articles and photographic essays about flight and the new aerial vision. And in his own writing, Hurley often tried to mimic the effects of this new viewpoint, as he called it. The travel writing specialist Wolfgang Schivelbusch has termed this panoramic perception, by which he means that we literally see the landscape through the apparatus that moves us through the world. And in this case, the apparatus is the camera attached to the aircraft. Hurley writes, for example, describing the effects of his film of the flight on the audience. You'll see one half of the globe spinning beneath your feet. Cities, towns, Cities, rivers, towns mountain rivers, peaks. mountain peaks, all strange to you, yet brought so close you feel like reaching out and touching them. You'll almost feel the insufferable heat as the Vimy plows away through the skies above the steaming deserts. You'll shiver, even as the men who did it might have, as you are entrapped in the drenching torrential rains of the Near East. You'll clench your teeth and hang tight to the seat as the giant plane swoops and dives and swirls through the vast open spaces of the air route. We can see there, I think, not only the close connection between writing and cinema, but also the connection between cinema and fairground attractions. Hurley's writing brought the sky down to earth, if you like. It brought the sky to the people. But there was a way in which the people took to the skies, or at least their voices did. Radio as a means of personal communication was a part of the tremendous breakdown of distance that Australia experienced between the wars. Without a wireless transmitting station at every isolated homestead, an aerial ambulance service would be 75% futile. John Flynn. For people in the remote outback, radio had a life-saving role to play and its development in Australia was inextricably linked to the Flying Doctors. Here's Fred Mackay again, talking about how John Flynn worked with another virtual unknown, Alf Traeger, 
to invent the vital communication technologies that helped close the vast distances of the bush. If there hadn't been an Alfred Traeger, there wouldn't have been a flying doctor service. He was a, a slim, boyish figure. He wore braces and he wore glasses. A man who talked about nothing except radio. And he had the gift of adapting known things so that they could be used. And when he went out with John Finn to, to Alice Springs in 1926, this was the beginning of a whole drama because um, they didn't have power except heavy Edison batteries and they had to cart them in, in the truck and they went out to Hermansburg and installed a set there, put one up behind the hostel in Alice Springs, another one at the police station at Altunga. That was 1926. This was the first experiment that gave Flynn hope. And Al Traeger goes back to Adelaide, sets up a little workshop, and he starts working. And out of that comes the, the pedal generator. He had heard about, you know, the Germans using pedals in wartime but he knew nothing about them. But he got bicycle pedals and an orthodox generator and linked them together and start to get a, a real solution to the power problem. So 1928 comes, Flying Doctor's already started, no radio. But the end of that year, Traeger has got this little machine going and John Flynn says, make six, make ten straight away. And... Uh, you know, the Flying Doctor and the radio system together then started to bring this mantle of safety over the whole country and people could talk to one another, they get medical help. And uh, Alf Traeger, this unassuming, quiet little man who would sit in a corner shyly and hardly like to speak to people, would never come to a function, never mix socially, but who lived with radio and talked with radio and drew circuits and always wanting to make plans about how to erect aerials. He wasn't a genius, he was a wizard, you know, in using all known methods to, to produce something that could give the bush a voice and the old dumb bush started to talk. You're listening to Hindsight on ABC Radio National. I'm Gretchen Miller, with you in the cockpit as we take to the sky for an aerial view of the history of our landscape. When World War struck again, for the first time, Australian skies became not a symbol of hope and the future, but a place of fear and direct threat. Darwin and Broome took the brunt of a year of bombing by the Japanese in 1942-43. I think there was a sense in which Australia was regarded as being reasonably safe from that kind of attack, that despite the speculation, despite the concern about the air being turned to military purposes, the idea of Britain being threatened was much more obvious than it was for Australia. As I say, the first channel crossing happened in 1909. But Australia seemed much safer from that kind of attack. So the idea that we might be vulnerable from the skies I don't think was well established at all. And so what happened? How did Australians psychologically react to these bombs falling from the sky? One of the first reactions from some of the eyewitnesses to the event was that they 
didn't believe that they were under attack from the enemy. Their first thought was that it was, um, it was our side, these were our forces. And then in presumably seconds, there's that traumatic realisation that this is not the case. And the first attack, first Darwin attack, lasts for about 40 minutes. And there's a second phase to the attack later in the day, which goes for perhaps half an hour, not much more. But what it produced, presumably, was, and there's not a lot of analysis of this that I'm aware of, but what it presumably produced was a sudden realisation that we were vulnerable from the air and vulnerable in a way that we hadn't been before, that the, the island continent, if you like, had been compromised um, in a much more dramatic and a much more savage and a much more alarming way than it could ever have been compromised from the sea. And so what are the psychological ramifications for Australia after that, as we came to terms with it? Because the bombings actually went on for over a year. Was it one of the many comings of age that we've had? Was it a loss of innocence? Do you think we've taken it on board, or is it just still a little too unbelievable? Well, I think any speculation about the psyche is always hazardous, but I think one of the dimensions of this story is that anything that took place in northern Australia was still at that stage remote from where most Australians lived. So there's a process of, if you like, segregating the immediacy and the enormity of that attack from something that was regarded as belonging to the nation at large. I think in that sense the submarine attacks on Sydney Harbour probably were more psychologically alarming because that had come right into the heart of the nation. I think there's still a sense that the Northern Territory and Darwin and Broome are at the periphery of the nation and strange things happen on the peripheries of nations. When aeroplanes first came to Australian skies, European Australians at least knew what to expect. But in remote desert communities with little or no outside contact, a plane was a very bizarre thing. Alison Anderson is a traditional literature woman from Papunya near Alice Springs. Her grandfather often told her about the first time he saw a plane. He was one of those nomads that lived without any clothes on his little place called Ilpoli, and there was a few of them because that was a big waterhole. And when they saw the first aeroplane coming, they thought there was this evil spirit. And they all started hiding in the trees and, you know, in grass. And some of the elders got their witchcraft out, you know, their spirits to kill this big monster that had landed there. And, yeah, it was a really, really funny story to hear coming from those elders, you know. But, uh, you know, later on in his life, and he just put the two together, oh, that's what it was. It was the planes that we see flying now, you know. Alison Anderson's grandmother, Pansy Nappengardi, and her mother, Emma Nungarai, also remember hearing the stories of the first plane. My grandfather was her uncle, the old man that I was telling you about, Bard Nyana Nyana, Jakamara. Exactly how I said before, you know, the old people were getting their spirits out to do black magic on the plane that was circling around and they was wondering why they couldn't do anything. And what went bang? You know, they, the spirits that they were throwing up there was just hitting brick walls, just going bang, you know, and falling down, yeah. 
Every year, northern Australia is pounded by big weather. Great dark storm clouds gather, winds whip into low pressure systems and the coastal communities batten down. It was some huge Queensland surf that first drew Jeff Callaghan's attention to the cyclones that caused it. He's now the head of the severe weather section at the Bureau of Meteorology in Brisbane, but in the 1960s he was a young and restless surfer. He joined the Bureau for a year to take weather observations in Antarctica and it was war again that provided the means of measurement. In fact, the radar we had down on uh, the Antarctic, the first trip, had a self-destruct button on it, which was disconnected, I might add, but it was uh, a World War II uh, radar, you know, and had been used for tracking aeroplanes, and so it had this self-destruct mechanism on it. The particular radar that I first struck could uh, have a range of, I can remember, 96,000 yards. It was English, so everything was in imperial units. So you could see a cyclone coming from a certain distance. How much warning did it give you? How useful well, was this, this radar? Well, well, the very first radar used in anger was in uh, 1956 at Townsville for tropical cyclone uh, Agnes. And that was the very first cyclone seen on radar. And that did provide warning. They would have seen it about 200 kilometres away. And so they would have had 10, 12 hours warning. And everyone knew it was coming anyway. It was a big system, so... And that was the uh, start of the age of tracking cyclones with uh, weather radar. And then the next big thing was the satellite. The satellite era was heralded by the Tyrus cyclone. It was a cyclone we, no one knew was there, but it was uh, sensed by the uh, Tyrus uh, development satellite in 1960. And uh, from it we saw this cyclone east of Brisbane, so a couple hundred kilometres, a uh, thousand kilometres east of Brisbane, which no one knew was there. How did you get your satellite reports at that time? 
Well, initially, the boss of the Bureau had a friend in America who used to send them out to him. Uh, in the early days, Dr Gibbs, I, I believe, the folklore has it, used to get these satellites sent out by mail, like carrier pigeon, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nowadays, of course, everything's digitised and online and, you know, you've got everything in front of you. The overarching sky and its weather brings us together in a shared experience, one of which has become drought and climate change. So has the weather changed or hasn't it? Some scientists will say the weather has been pretty consistent, that although you may think there were more sunny days when you were a child, in fact your memory is just conflating all the good times into one endless summer. But there has been cyclical change in living memory, Markedly so for eastern staters. In the couple of decades from the mid-1950s, the east coast was buffeted badly. A cyclone is imminent. A few hours of organised family action can turn the odds your way. It included a very severe event that hit Sydney in 1950. They called it the Sydney Cyclone. It actually came overland from the Gulf of Carpentaria and it uh, claimed about 10 lives between Brisbane and Sydney, and today, you know, with the increased population, that it'd be a much, much worse event. And there was another one similar in 1955 that caused uh, disastrous floods around the Maitland area. So uh, in that period, it wasn't only Queensland, it was also New South Wales that really copped a hammering. You know, we've been in such a benign period since 1977 where we've been uh, dominated by El Nino rather than La Nina. And there were other times similar to this when La Nina dominated. Yeah, probably the worst period was uh, oh, from the 1890s through to the 1920s. There was a really bad cyclone across the Queensland coast and produced the worst floods on record in Brisbane in 1893. Washed away the Victoria Bridge. Uh, I think there was about 25 people killed and it was only a small city then, so... Uh, and that went on to 1899 when this, uh, probably the worst cyclone that ever affected Australia uh, hit the Pearling Fleet up at Bathurst Bay north of Cooktown and killed over 300 people. And then the really bad year was 1918 when two really severe cyclones, one a Category 4, hit Mackay in January and uh, later in March uh, a Category 5 cyclone hit Innisfail and, and both of them occurred at high tide and both had very, very severe storm surges which killed a lot of people. As an illustration, uh, in the 1890s, Stradbroke Island off Brisbane broke in half at Jumping Pin. And that was just due to the sea activity from the cyclones in the 1880s and 1890s. So I guess the thing is, it's not the strength, though, that's the main factor, is it? What are the factors that make cyclones so powerful and so impactful? Well, the worst effect is from the water, either the waves or the flooding from freshwater or saltwater flooding. The wind doesn't seem to actually kill a lot of people unless it's something like Tracy which was in a fairly badly built town and uh, moved very slowly and killed a lot of people due to wind but generally it's the the freshwater and saltwater flooding that kills people so you can have a cyclone moving slow and maybe only a category two or three but can be very very lethal because it uh, produces uh, so much flooding and storm surge. Now the sky was pitchy black behind him. Thunder was rumbling far away. Wind was moaning in the jungle to the right. That storm was a cockeye bob. It was not long in coming. It began with a gust of wind that smote him like a club and sent him and horse staggering into the scrub beside the river that for a moment crushed the tall grass flat 
that filled the sky with leaves. Then lightning streamed down the black wall in the north, like water down the face of a bursting dam. Then a mighty cannonade, then bursting of the dam. The rain did not stop, indeed, as with the falling of the wind, it descended perpendicularly. It seemed to increase in volume, and with a roar as steady as that of a waterfall, poured down for half an hour. He could not see a yard ahead for rain, could not even see his top boots for water racing to the river. Then the rain stopped dead. The surroundings were revealed as though by the drawing of a silver curtain. Xavier Herbert's novel Capricornia, which was first published in 1938, is another novel in which we have a sense of the overwhelming nature of the Australian environment on European people, expressed especially, I think, through his sense of the tropical sky, which in the wet season is, is extremely violent and overwhelming. The central character is Norman, who's a half-caste Aboriginal, although he's brought up to think that he, his mother was Indian. And his discovery of his Aboriginal heritage takes place through an encounter with cyclonic storms during the wet season in a marvellous chapter called The Song of the Golden Beetle. And Herbert describes the sublime impact of the cyclone on Norman, which leads him to a recognition of his Aboriginal identity and his belonging to this place. And Herbert's descriptions convey the prodigious spectacle of the cyclone and its storms and the sense that Norman can at once be drenched to the skin but also burnt by the sun rays as if he's being burnt by a magnifying glass. Um, the effect of that environment on white civilization is very different and I think this links up to debates about the white man in the tropics and anxieties about the white man in the tropics during the 1930s. The white settlements that Herbert depicts in the north tend to be degenerate and dysfunctional and the cyclonic wet season makes them even more so. And that's symbolised perhaps best of all in the novel by the railways. The trains are always broken down, the drivers are, are reckless drunks and of course in the wet season the trains are brought to a complete standstill. There's one marvellous um, moment when one of the train drivers, Herbert says, is using his instrument to survey the sun, tilting it to survey the sun. And it's not a theodolite, it's a beer bottle. Like many of the train drivers, he's a dissolute wreck. So this environment is very much part, I think, of that, that concern about whether white settlement can take place in the tropics or whether it degenerates physically and morally, but also ethically. The power of this sky has long fascinated artist Mandy Martin, and she's inspired also by the way artists from earlier times express the confusing tricks of light and distance. People like explorer artist Ludwig Becker and George French Angus, who came to Australia at the turn of the 19th century. Often their meteorological observations became really of great interest to me. And, you know, since um, the early 80s, I've continued to employ a lot of the visual devices that those artists who came from a sort of romantic, sublime European heritage, I've used a lot of those same devices. You know, things like the lunette, the sort of halo of light, 
which is like an egg shape, an ovoid shape, in the, in the sky. And when there's a suspended dust there and, and there are no other clouds, you will actually see a structure in the sky. Um, you'll see it occur later on in the 20th century in some of the surrealists' work. And, um, for example, Man Ray used it in that really famous photograph of his of the woman with her chin thrown back. Obviously that signified ecstasy. Other artists observed all of those sort of phenomena too. Uh, Ludwig Becker, for example, was a keen observer of not only sort of things like meteors shooting through the sky, but the effect of refraction caused by dust in the, in the desert. Seeing an ellipse or the effect of refraction somewhat like dazzling white in the middle of the retina and then out to the edge of the retina and your peripheral vision you'll get this darker more intense color and that's a straight physiological thing because the the cone cells in the eye um, if you stare at something intensely for a period of time they get tired and they want to in fact have a rest so what they do is they'll then demand that you see the alternative color um, its complementary color or they'll just kind of phase out and you'll just see a blur and that's sort of what happens literally with the ellipse and Becker you know I don't know if he was suffering migraines but the you know the poor man sort of died slightly later and he certainly was seeing those sort of physiological but also actual phenomena in the desert sky so yeah, I mean all of these structural forms, you see them appearing frequently in art, really sort of 15th century uh, right through to current day. Artistically, you cannot have light without shadow to bring it into relief. So the sky, the open, optimistic, future-facing Australian sky with its clarity of light, also has its corresponding metaphorical opposite. Robert Dixon again. We've spoken before about the sense of light as being an emblem of the bounty and the welcoming nature of Australia to European settlement. And certainly that sense of beauty and bounty in the New World is foundational. But we're coming increasingly, I think, to see that wherever there is light, there is also darkness that is associated with settler memory of the displacement of Aboriginal people. As if the landscape were haunted. And that, that sense of haunting is absolutely as foundational, the sense of darkness is as foundational as the sense of, of light. Significantly, it's there from the beginning of the literature. How do writers express this? Do they do it literally in terms of shadows, in terms of ghosts? Yes, quite often uh, literally in terms of shadows and ghosts. A good example is the, the poet Henry Kendall who's one of the leading colonial poets. And he wrote a number of poems about the bush of the east coast of Australia as if it were bathed in light. And he's drawing there, of course, very much on the English romantic poets like Wordsworth, who used the sense of light to convey the spiritual bounty of the natural world. But scholars are increasingly coming to discover that those kinds of images in Kendall are accompanied by a sense of haunting and darkness. We can see this in a number of the poems in Kendall's first collection, Songs from the Mountains, which was published in 1888. Typically, the mountains and trees and streams are bathed in light that symbolises the bounty of the new world. But many of Kendall's poems also have an opposite sense of fading light or positive darkness in the form of images like gnarled trees or glens and ravines from which haunting sounds emerge, particularly during the night. 
an example of this is the poem called The Wail of the Native Oak. Now in this poem, Kendall goes back into bushland that he has once seen in the daylight, bathed in natural light. But the light, he says, has now departed. And instead, he hears a wind sighing in what he calls the native oak, which, of course, is the casuarina tree. And through a series of associations, he comes to connect this crying of the, the wind in the tree with a crime or a violent act. And eventually he comes to have the vision of a spectre which haunts the place. And it's, it is very much the spectre of an Aboriginal person. Came a footfall past the water, came a wild man through the gloom. Down he stooped and faced the current, silent as the silent tomb. Down he stooped and lapped the ripples, not a single word he spoke. But I whispered, he can tell me of the secret in the oak. And later in the poem, Kendall goes on to associate this spectre even more explicitly with the Aboriginal tribes who once inhabited this place. Hold you not some strange tradition coupled with this strange lament when your tribe about their campfires hear that hollow, broken cry? Do they hint of deeds mysterious, hidden in the days gone by? Now, I think it's really quite extraordinary there that one of the most famous colonial poets who's famous for his light-filled landscapes of the bush, should dwell in such a powerful way on this sense that the land is haunted by its first peoples, who've been violently and illegitimately displaced. So we can see here that whilst the sense of beauty and bounty is foundational, so too is the sense of haunting. And wherever there is darkness, there is, there is shadow and there is haunting. The painting that immediately leaps to mind is Margaret Preston's painting of the Shoalhaven where she was at that time particularly interested in indigenous art and you know, using what she thought or felt were indigenous colours. So it's all browns and blacks and earth colours and, and her clouds cast big lumpy potatoes, sort of black shadows on the folds of the hills and I, I loved that painting, I thought it was fantastic and actually painting shadows from clouds onto landscape is an incredibly difficult thing to do and one something that I've often tackled but I suppose it's really more in figurative painting that you're aware of shadows I mean people like Tucker and um, in the 50s but right through to say you know John Catapan in a contemporary sense in Melbourne now and they really talk about shadows as the spirit and the soul if you have light falling evenly on something in an evenly lit situation, the object disappears. So you need shadow to see the form, literally and metaphorically, yeah. In next week's program on Hindsight, we're thinking about another powerful element in the Australian experience, heat. In one long, hot summer... A History of Heat, we'll talk about the way Aboriginal Australians and new settlers experienced the warmth of the Australian climate. From fears the new settlers would go tropo to embracing the virile, energising heat as appropriate to a new nation. So our final words today on both the sky and heat from Dick Kimber, Alice Springs historian. 
when I've been out in the drought times, it can be uh, very clear early in the morning. But I was down near Lake Eyre once. The day I was travelling when it went from 47 uh, overnight to 50, that was only a shade temperature. And that particular day I, I tried to write a note and I, it's not a good note because I couldn't think of the right colour. But it's, it's kind of a heat haze, salt haze and uh, must be fine particles in the air from the, the dust storms become a salt storm as it were and there's a salt in the sky and I said it, the sun jumped up like a red tomato is my memory of my description. It's not a very good description but the heat becomes immediate, it's immediate. I've been in the Simpson Desert in very hot weather again and the sky goes from the conventional blue, it's like it becomes whiter blue. Well the Deary had a term, the heavens have turned to bone. The heavens have turned to bone.